All right, welcome back to episode 14, everyone. A little bit different with today's episode and guests, but incredibly amped up for this one. He really doesn't need an introduction. And if you're a regular listener of this podcast and don't know him, what the hell are you doing? Start watching his stuff. <laughs> um, there really isn't anything he hasn't done or isn't doing when it comes to the involvement with the squash community. He's a former professional, a certified trainer, mentor, and a little bit of a YouTube celebrity. He's the founder of <laughs> AR Proformance. Welcome, Ahad Raza. How are you? Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be here, Sean. I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming. Oh, shit. Sorry. Almost forgot to mention he's also... A husband and father, which I should have started off with, um, <laughs> but I can't believe I almost forgot to mention that. <laughs> but um, how is everything? You must be incredibly busy with everything that's going on with your life and juggling everything. Yeah, yeah, things are things are awesome. <laughs> They're awesome, but they are very hectic. You know, like you said, husband, father. I have a daughter that's almost three, so she keeps us pretty busy. That's the <laughs> number one priority. And then the mentoring stuff. So I'm doing a bunch of stuff virtually. Obviously, the YouTube videos take a, a lot of time. Yeah. But there's the virtual mentoring that I'm doing with kind of like detailed video analysis work. And then there's the in-person coaching. And then there's some business stuff that's going on in the side with like business consulting. And also really trying to juggle a bunch of balls and then figure out kind of what the what the optimal space to be in is. Right. Um, question about your YouTube. When How did you start please. getting into, you know, analysis of mm -hmm. like, you know, putting it out there for everyone to see? Well, you know, I've been I've been playing squash since I was about 14 or 15. So I started pretty late considering kind of uh, the level I ended up reaching. And I love the game. I love analyzing the game. And one day during COVID, during lockdowns here in Canada, things have been locked down a lot more than they have in certain other parts of the world. So during lockdown one day, I said, you know what, I'm going to start creating some videos and we'll see what happens. And I put out the first one. And it got like seven or 800 views or something like that. And I was like, whoa, this is, mm -hmm. this is kind of cool. You know, compared to other YouTube. Oh, no, that's, like that's millions, millions of views in, in squash. <laughs> yeah. For squash. <laughs> so I looked at that and I said, okay, this is pretty cool. It's working. People are clearly enjoying it. And then it just sort of evolved from there. One yeah. thing went to the next and so on and so forth. Got it. Yeah. No, I always, um, yeah. when I'm like checking out like the analytics of what, how I'm doing with my, the podcast, I'm just like, you know what? Mm -hmm. I can always like, look for, you know, the, the goal is, you know, getting as it is out there, the views, the people, you know, who want to see. So, you know, right. always not trying to get too discouraged, but. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing, right? Like you got, you got to, the one thing I've learned over time is that the more I focus on the views and the metrics, yeah, the more it kind of distracts me. So when I just focus on putting my quality out there and mm -hmm. I focus on delivering value, then everything sort of works out and, even when you don't get the views like that, also I'll give you an example. The most recent video I've put up is with Sebastian Beaumont. Yeah. And I think it's like filled with so much value and so much quality in it, but it has fewer views compared to many of the other videos. So yeah, I'm not thinking about the views. I'm just thinking the people that are watching that are benefiting so greatly. And mm -hmm. I put my kind of heart and soul into it. And Sebastian was super open and upfront and everything. And at the end of the day, we put together quality and it'll get, It'll get viewed by the people that view it. That's awesome. Uh, is there a particular direction you want to continue ahead with, you know, how you do with the YouTube channel in particular? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when you asked, how did I start the channel? I started it on a bit of a whim and it's, I don't have this crazy strategy about where I want to go. The thing that I do want to do is I want to get more of the pros on to kind of get more of the in-depth analyses with the pros, but I got to figure out because 
they're getting to, to these massive long videos. So they're almost like these masterclass videos. And most people don't have the time or the attention span to listen for an hour and a half or an hour, right. like two hours sometimes. Right. Yeah. So I want to continue teaching people. I want to continue inspiring people with those shorter kind of 50, 10 to 20 minute videos. I want to, but I also want to bring that like really in-depth coaching lens to it, but I have to figure out the appropriate way to bring that coaching lens. And mm. the other thing I want to start bringing more is the mindset side of it. So I want to start talking to some of these really, really successful professionals and show people what it takes mentally to get there because the technical side, everyone can kind of understand what you need to do. You need to go on court and hit balls in a certain way. And there's a certain way to practice the tactical side. You can understand their combinations. You have to practice these things. And then it kind of comes out in gameplay. Physical side is probably the most well-known because everyone knows about fitness and it's everywhere. There's, there is a correct way to do it though, which, which sometimes gets missed. And then the mental side of it is kind of like that black box. So I want to try to shine a light on that black box a bit more. Yeah. So another follow-up question I had for you is, you know, you seem to have such an analytical approach. And I think I read one of your articles about the, I think you said the movement is probably the most important component of the game. Do you think mm -hmm. this, you know, analytical thinking just comes from your nature or does it have to do a little bit with your late start to the introduction to the game? You know, it's a combination of all of it, I think, mm -hmm. um, including my studies my late start to the game. So I'll tell you the way I started playing, I started, like I said, at 14, 15. And the way I taught myself to play was sitting in my room at my desktop with a video of Jahangir Khan and John Shere Khan, who are kind of like my idols growing up. I'm or originally from Pakistan, mm -hmm. Pakistani legends. And I would have the mouse button in my left hand uh, hovering over the frame by frame, slow motion wow. button on Windows media player. <laughs> and then I had my racket in my right hand and I'll basically go click, click, click and I'd be adjusting my racket to see, you know, how are they setting up their swing? How are they moving and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the analytical lens started at that age. I've always been more into math and numbers and all that kind of stuff. And then I studied economics and I've done a master's degree in economics and I worked at a financial institution for almost eight years. So that analytical lens is kind of there. Yeah. So I think that's part of what I feel is, uh, is a strength of mine is merging and marrying the analytics with the passion, with the communication and the coaching ability. And that's why my hope is to try to help people improve through these videos. Gotcha. Um, so just transitioning into what today's episode is going to be about, I thought, you know, it'd be a good time to look ahead of 2022. And honestly, January has been not so great with coverage of squash with Houston open yeah. and right now the motor city, it's all, it seems to be on YouTube. And I thought, you know, with, no platinum events going on. What better time mm -hmm. to discuss the players, you know, going into 2022. But yep. bef before we go into that, I wanted to, you know, put you on the spot and ask you two questions. <laughs> um, yep. I want to talk about two players that have been discussed heavily throughout your channel. And I think mm -hmm. they're Paul Cole and Mustafa Saul. Right. So starting with Paul Cole, we all know he's going to be in the new rankings. He's going to be the world number one. And yeah. in your analytical standpoint, do you believe he's currently the best player in the world? You know, I think he, I think he is, he's right up there. So I don't think he's the best by like a massive margin, Yeah. I, but I think he's right there. Like he and Ali Farag and Muhammad Shorbagi, assuming he comes back fit and strong, um, I think those guys, Mustafa Sal is there, but I think he, he's a he's a little bit behind because of some of the other stuff that's going on with the controversies and all of that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. 
the, the mental side of it potentially, <laughs> but Paul Cole's evolved a ton over the last six months to a year. And, you know, he's been, he's called Superman for a reason. Yeah. Super fit, super fast, picks up everything. But a year or two years ago, he was basically a retriever. He was a sponge and he didn't have much attacking. He had a solid foundation, but for that level of squash to be winning those matches, to not have your body suffer <laughs> after every match, you need to do a little bit more than just retrieve. And that's the thing that Paul Cole has systematically added so effectively over the last year or so. It's almost like every tournament you see, and he's like incrementally better. At uh, first, it was the drop on on the one hand, on the forehand. His drop became really good. Then his drop on the backhand became really good. Then his volleys became really good. Then his volley cross courts became really good. Then his nicks became really good. And then you know he's just applying that marginal pressure in more situations than he could previously. And he doesn't make yeah. a ton of errors. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, that's a really good recipe, but you know, Ali Farag is phenomenal. So if you think, and he's been super consistent, he's had a couple of little ups and downs here and there, but he's been really consistent. So I can't say Paul Cole is by far <laughs> the best player, but yeah. he's, he's right up there now, in my opinion. Yeah. No, one thing about Paul Cole is I think he's the only player that in the top 10 that, you know, you could compare a, a video of him playing in 2018, 2019, and you compare a mm -hmm. video with him today, it mm -hmm. looks different. Most players seem, yeah. you don't really, as a fan viewpoint, you don't really see a change. Right. You know, there could be tiny minor changes going on, but with Paul Cole, there seems, he seems like a different player every time, every new season right. coming in. And, and it's interesting too, because, you know, a few years ago, he, he genuinely had a pretty basic game, right? Yeah. So it's easier to identify some of those changes when you have a basic game to start with and then suddenly you add in three, four more shots. Whereas with a lot of these other guys, it's a lot of it comes down to consistency. They're not necessarily doing a ton. They're, they're not adding these new layers into their game. It's like marginal improvements at several things and then oftentimes it's mental and pressure. Yeah. When you're that high, <laughs> not, not when you're like 30, 40 in the world, then you do have those improvements, but when you're already like top five, yeah. then it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Now, the second question is if you were to interview a Saul tomorrow and you could get an <laughs> honest, unfiltered answer out of him, what would the uh -huh. question be? Oh man, that's a tough question. It, it would probably be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, do you? <laughs> I don't even know what I want to say. <laughs> I have so many questions when it comes to Asal. Yeah. I would probably ask him something related to how does he want to be remembered when it's all said and done? Um, because I think that is going to dive into his rationale behind the way he plays and the way he approaches the game. So it probably wouldn't be a super direct question like, yeah, that's a layered one. Yeah. Or do you think that you're blocking or are you yeah. doing it deliberately or you know, is your movement sketchy? Do you know, like, oh, whatever, right? Like, I wouldn't be something yeah. like that because those are assumptions that I'm making at that point, right? Mm -hmm. I want to understand, like, at a deeper level, kind of what's going on in his mind. And if I could touch out with him, that's how I would approach the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So, going into what this episode's going to be about. Before yeah. this podcast, I asked Aha to pick out five players he believes should be on everyone's radars coming into 2022. I didn't really give him a set criteria on how yeah. he should be picking the five players, so it's fully his yeah. thoughts. And because who else, who better to get these thoughts on? Oh. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on all the players, but I'll give you my thoughts. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's get into it. Uh, who's who's the first player we got? Yeah, so 
I tried to think of this from several layers, and, the re- and maybe I'll, I'll share the criteria just to kind of give people some ideas about what to think about. Mm-hmm. And I have them written over here, so I'm going to glance at my notes real quick. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about elements like accuracy, consistency, how many options players have, what their game style looks like, what their evolution has been like, their mental toughness, how they handle pressure, their hunger and motivation, and then potentially physicality. So injuries, health, that sort of thing. So it's kind of like longevity, motivation, style of play. So those are the sorts of categories I was thinking about at a high level when I was thinking about these players and the players that I have. And I wouldn't say this is in ranked order. The first two are interchangeable. <laughs> like Paul Cole, Ali Farah, Mohamed Sharbagi, if he's healthy, is right. They're interchangeable in yeah. those three, in my opinion. Um, I think Mustafa Sal is someone to really watch out for as well. Uh, Joel Macon, I think we really need to watch out for. Then I have like a little list of wild cards, in my opinion, uh, yeah. because these guys are up and coming or they're really good, but they haven't been that consistent. Uh, so from that perspective, I think Tarek Moment has to be in there. Uh, I think Mohamed Abulgar, yeah, so skilled, but not that consistent. Ferris Tsuki, same thing, not that consistent. And then mentally a little bit up and down, same thing with Abulgar. Uh, Diego Elias, physically a little bit up and down. And uh, I thought Yusuf Ibrahim is coming out pretty strong and he's like super crafty and talented. So I think he's someone we should we should be watching out for as well. I mean, there are more, but this yeah. is kind of the list I came up with. Should, yeah. So wanted to like go down into breakdown of each each player. Um, yeah. Should we start off with Asal? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, like Asal's just a beast, right? <laughs> like he's a raging bull <laughs> for a reason. So he's so strong. He's so fit. He's so fast. He plays the game so dynamically. I think he's taken everything to another level when it comes to how crisply he's hitting, how explosively he's covering the court, um, playing through interference, like all of that stuff. I think he just, and he's hungry. He's young and he's hungry and he wants to move up. So I think when you put all those layers together, uh, he's definitely a recipe for disaster for some of these, like the world number one, two, and three. And, and you know, he's been challenging Ali Farag pretty consistently when they've been playing. He's beaten Shorbagi over the last few months. So I think also, like, he, he's just a given that we have to be mindful of him. The, yeah. the side we also have to be mindful for is some of the controversy, though, right? Yeah. So he has that suspension right now. Hopefully that doesn't happen again, because mm-hmm. if that happens again, obviously, like, he's, he's not playing, right? So uh, that kind of takes away from that. But, yeah, I think Asal, for sure, is someone we need to watch for those reasons. So two questions I have for you for Asal mm-hmm. is, you know, you mentioned earlier about your criteria is evolution and longevity. What do you think needs to happen with in terms of evolution of his game? And also, mm-hmm. do you feel his game is fitted for longevity? So I think the way he moves right now, not the most, uh, it's not conducive to longevity. Mm-hmm. He's so hard on his body with those crazy movements, the diving, like all that kind of stuff. Uh, splits, you know, all those kind of things at a younger age. And everyone's body is different, right? So it's hard to say, but you would imagine that with that much wear and tear and pounding on the joints, probably not conducive to crazy longevity. So he probably needs to do something uh, when it comes to that to kind of manage the style of play. Because you've seen that even with Rami Ashore when he was younger, he would be like flying all over the court. And unfortunately, he had those injuries over the years, right? Yeah. So I think there needs to be some sort of management of playing style when it comes to us all so that he isn't 
putting that much wear and tear on his body. And, and you see it with all the older players, like as Nick Matthew got older, as Goltier got older, everyone started switching more to bike sessions instead of like track sessions or court running and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So I don't know what Asal's training looks like off court, but he does play very aggressively on court. So if he's balancing that really effectively and his body's so strong, maybe he'll be okay. But I mean, it's that in my opinion is it's maybe not the best approach. Um, so that was longevity evolution of game. I think, and this goes back to the question you asked me, right? Like if I were to interview him, I would ask him how he would like to be remembered. What sort of legacy would he like to leave behind? So if his desire is to leave a legacy that says I'm was one of the fairest, most dynamic, um, kind of game changing style players, then I think there needs to be a bit of an evolution when it comes to some of his movement and things like that. Um, Although I would imagine, this is just me putting up conjecture, the ban, the suspension is probably related to some of that stuff. So if that's the case, I'm assuming that he's probably reflecting on why he received the suspension. And if, and if he is doing that reflection, he would come to recognize, okay, what are some of the changes I need to make so that this does not happen again, so that I can be out there playing. So hopefully this suspension gives him some of the time to reflect and then he makes some of those changes so that he can come back and be a slightly different player if his legacy is aligned with some of the things that i mentioned yeah i think um in a recent interview with squash radio they kind of asked mm -hmm. him about the legacy thing how would you like to be remembered and i think okay it was briefly answered it was towards the end of the interview but i think mm -hmm. he was going on the lines of i want to be remembered as someone who put it all out there Mm. Which I, I guess it. I mean, he's on. It does show. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Current character. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, one one more question about is what do you think is holding him back from beating Farag? It seems like the one homework he hasn't really solved. Yeah, you know that's a, that's a tough question. I think I think in some cases those referee decisions maybe started getting into his mind a little bit. He's probably feeling a bit hard done near the tail end of matches. Uh, Ali Farag is so tough because he also just keeps absorbing. He gets on the volley early. He takes time away from you. Like Ali Farag extends the rallies a bit more than most other players do. Mm -hmm. And Asal probably isn't able to finish the rally quite as early as he is accustomed to or would like to do. So one of the things that like PJ and Joey and all these guys talk about is Asal's aerobic capacity, right? So when someone is, so I'm, I'm making an assumption that Asal is extremely fast twitch muscle fiber, very explosive, very plyometric. So those short, sharp rallies serve him better than longer, medium pace, drawn out rallies. So I think what Ali Farag does is because of his ability to absorb and it's just like resetting on the volley and stuff like that, he extend those, extends those rallies a bit more and he uses the hold and the angles and stuff like that. So he makes us all work a little bit more against most of the other players. He's not being made to do that same level of work with the start stop stuff. So I think a bit of fitness stuff maybe gets into his mind. I think mm. the decisions get into his mind a little bit potentially. Um, and when you're playing Ali Farag, it doesn't take much <laughs> to, to fall back. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving, moving on to the next player, I think it'd be fitting to mm -hmm. talk about this player after assault is Mohamed El Shabag, who I seems cool. the polar other end of spectrum where, you know, he's a lot mm. older, more experienced talk yep. about longevity yep. and evolution. <laughs> mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on Mohammed and why you think he should be a player to watch for 2022? Well, I think Mohammed 
he's been such a dominant player for so many years. And recently, obviously, he had a bit of a slump for a few tournaments. And I don't know exactly what's going on, but physically, if you compare a video of Muhammad from two or th- say two years ago or three years ago, compared to very recent tournaments, he looks a lot thinner and he doesn't look quite as strong as he used to look. And Muhammad's game has historically been, you know, an aggressive, hard-hitting, fast-paced game. And when you're not physically up to up to par or up to scratch for that sort of game, it's really like you can't do it, right? And that's yeah. what we noticed is he'd get in those matches and he would just like hit this wall. And most players do hit a wall at some point, but they typically can move past that wall. They get a second wind or a third wind. With Muhammad, it looked like he was really struggling. It could be a nutrition thing. It could be a, the, the way he's been training or he's been focused on a different aspect of training. I don't know. Um, but the reason I think he's so dangerous is because he has a tremendous amount of experience. His body is pretty healthy from my understanding. Like, I don't think he has any ongoing injuries. Uh, he's, his game style, like his ball control, his awareness, his options, all of that stuff is deadly. And the guy's probably hungry now because he's probably thinking, what the heck is going on? Like, this is not how I want to be playing right now. Yeah. And he's not that old. Like, he still has a few years ahead of him, I think. So he's probably hungry to come back and, and prove himself. So I think he's, he's going to come out strong. Yeah. No, I think people, uh, commonly mistake him as being very old but it's just because he's played on the tour for such a long time <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah how old is he is he like 30 i think yeah he's not he's he's, he's not more he's than 30 yet early 30s or 30 yeah no way yeah, yeah, yeah. but want to ask you about then moving on to paul cole what what do you think yeah. paul cole needs to do to cement himself at the top spot and make sure he continues to stay there well, I think the thing with Paul Cole is his mindset, right? Like his mindset is first of first and foremost, everything we've seen Superman, it's just like never give up. He's relentless. So I think that's something he's just going to continue to do. I think he needs to continue to be smarter with his approach to the game, which based, even based on the interview he and Joey Barrington did recently, he's, he's being far more thoughtful. Like let's say his CrossFit training volume, he's brought that down significantly. So he he's keeping his body healthier and fitter instead of just grinding it out and continue to grind it out and risk injury. So I think for him, he needs to continue the thoughtful approach to the game, managing his body. So with Rob Owen, he's obviously been doing a lot of stuff to add those shot options to his game. So if he continues to take that methodical approach to maybe add another shot, to maintain his consistency, to stay injury free, I think he, then he's going to become dominant in my opinion. If he keeps adding another layer and another layer and keeps taking this systematic approach, I think he'll become dominant. Because he kind of, there was one match, I don't remember which match it was, but there was one match that he played not that long ago where I was like, man, this is kind of reminiscent of Jahangir Khan because Jahangir Khan would come out and he'd basically like wear his opponents down. And he typically had like more fitness than them. And at, depending on when, what time, what era we kind of looked at, he added that backhand volley drop really effectively and he kind of added another dimension to the game. Pace, power, fitness, and then a bit of attacking. So I think if Paul Cole can continue to add that attacking layer to it uh, and add more options, maybe from the back of the court. So right now he's really good in the front. Now he's out of the mid. If he can add attacking options and maybe some holds and stuff like that from the back of the court, in addition to what he's already been doing, and he stays healthy, uh, I think he's he's, he's going to be tough to beat. Yeah. A question I have for Paul Cole is the idea of longevity. As someone who you know bases yeah. his game so much on fitness, and I know we've been speaking yeah. a lot about you know the additions to his game, yeah. Do you think his current way of movement is fit for longevity? Well, I think that's what he and Robbo, and that's something that they have been working on and that they're probably going to continue to work on because I think he was saying, even in that interview with Joey, he was saying that 
you know, he'd be diving and Rob would be like, what the hell are you doing? You know? <laughs> and he said something like, he never saw John Chair diving, right? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I think Paul Cole's movement is becoming pretty efficient. I think part of that is not just his movement technique. Part of that is also reading the ball, reading the game, reading your opponent, looking at the quality of your shot, and then you know hedging your bets a little bit or getting a good understanding of anticipation and stuff, which but I'm not saying you can't anticipate. I'm just saying that as you improve that skill even more, then it makes your movement seem that much more efficient. Yeah. Wait, real quick on a side note, I mm-hmm. this is something that I've always been curious about is the different eras of players. And with squash, do you part of me feels like the current every era as we move forward is obviously going to be better for, you know, they're they're given more resources, more, you know, knowledge of the game. Mm-hmm. But do you mm-hmm. do you buy into that argument or do you feel that any like top player from another era mm-hmm. could fully, you know, transition into the current era i know that's a oddly phrased question but if that makes sense yeah no i get it i think you know it's like mike way i remember i talked to mike way about this and his his idea which i agree with was that if you take jahangir's game from 1988 and then you take john chair's game from 1994 and then you take jonathan power peter peter nickel from the early to mid 2000s if you just take them with their game it wouldn't stack up to the current game because it's super dynamic. But if Jahangir or Rodney Martin or John Chair, whoever it was, were born in this era, they would definitely adapt to the game. Mm-hmm. And they would be dominant, maybe not like 10 years in a row dominant, but they would definitely be dominant because they had all of the attributes that made to make them successful. So the game has evolved, the technology has evolved and all of that, and you can't compare that to today, right? It's like... It's like in sprinting, if you look at sprinting from 100 years ago, or let's say 50 years ago, the surface for sprinting was different. They didn't have the same kind of cleats. They didn't have the same technology. You know, there, there, was, there wasn't as much traction. So they're obviously going to be slower. But if you put those same people in with current training methodologies and current technologies, then it will be just as fast as the top guys right now. So that that is my opinion. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I was always curious about that because it seems we – in squash – in particular, there's always comparisons with, you know, past mm. past players. So that'd be a really relevant question. Yeah, yeah. It's impossible to compare. Like if you put John Chair in today's game and let's say John Chair was 25 years old right now, he would probably be world number one or mm. something like that right now because he would have the same work ethic. He would have the same dedication. He would have the same like physical abilities to move and everything, except it would be dynamic with modern equipment on a lower tin and he would adapt to play this aggressive game. Yeah. And he had the anticipation and everything, so it would just kind of translate into today. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Ali Farag now. Um, what do okay. you think he needs to do to regain the top spot and, you know, really figure out the Paul Cole homework? It's really been flipped the past couple of events with Paul Cole seeming to he, figure out how to play. Yeah, yeah. You know, with Ali Farag, it's he's got a pretty complete game. Like, the one thing that pops up every now and then when I watch him is that he has a tendency to, to cheat or poach a lot on, to volley the ball. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul Cole and some other players, when they're, when, they're, when they're in the zone and they're aware of that sort of movement, Ali Farag is getting burned a little bit on the cross court. So, for example, when the player, say Paul Cole's in the back left, Ali Farag is like hunting over to volley that ball in the back left. 
Paul Cole sees it, and then he hits that quality cross. Because of Ali Farag's movement quality, he's still able to get most of those balls, if not all of them, but he's under pressure. So I find that he's maybe doing a little bit more work than he might need to. He's 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 not he's controlling the rally the way he does and he's falling the way he does but he's just doing a little bit more unnecessarily so i i think that's one thing that he could work on if he wants to but at the same time he's hedging his bets and saying hey i'd rather i i have a like a 80 percent success rate at anticipating my movement will cover me for the other 20 percent I'd rather put that 80% bet on volleying and then putting more pressure on my opponent. And if he catches me, I'm going to reset the ball. So, you know, with Farag, that that's kind of like the only thing that I see him getting burnt on a little bit. There's a little bit of maybe mental stuff now and then where he gets a little bit tired or he hits like the wrong shot or something like that. But his game is, it's pretty complete. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like he's got a pretty, he attacks on the back well, he attacks on the front, he defends, he moves well, he's pretty fit. Like I've never seen him really get tired in a match. I mean, there's been a couple of times actually where if he's had the back-to-back hard matches, like when he's played Asal, for example, in the quarters. Which he always seems final, to be. Yeah, he always gets him right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe there's something on like longevity of fitness, like through a tournament. So like endurance as a tournament goes on, maybe that's something he could look at. But um, I mean, anyone who has like this massive five setter, and if you have like two, three massive five setters in a row, you're going to be tired by the third or fourth match. Yeah. So yeah, tough to say. <laughs> and one, one thing that in comparison with him and Paul Cole, when they get matched up, it seems mm-hmm. pretty obvious on just a fan standpoint that Paul Cole is utilizing the law particularly a lot with mm-hmm. Farag. Mm-hmm. Now, one question I have is you don't seem to see that a lot with other players use that tactic. Mm-hmm. Do you think that just simply has to do with Paul Cole being very good with the lob and mm-hmm. him thinking that that's a weakness of Ali Barak? I was always curious why other players don't implement this tactic as well. The lob. Well, it might be, it could just be something that Paul Cole wants to do because if he's hitting kind of at mid height, Ali Farag loves volleying that ball mid court, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're getting the ball past him, well, all of a sudden, Farag's volley's not there. Or if it is there, he can't attack a ton from that position. So Paul Cole is leveraging an effective tactic to buy himself time and to neutralize one of Ali Farag's weapons. Now, you have to be in a good position to hit a good lob. So if you mess that lob up, now you're in trouble. So maybe Paul Cole feels really comfortable and competent with the lob. His movement and strength and stability allow him to execute that lob effectively. And he's realizing... I'd rather do this because Paul Cole also has that like patient mentality, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's down for a hundred shot rallies. If that's what it's going to take some other players be like, Oh man, I don't have the fitness to play for two hours with Ali Farag. Whereas Paul Cole is saying, let's go, right? Like yeah. let's go for two hours. And then that's probably why he's saying, just going to reset, do something. If you want to force it from here, take your chances. Otherwise let's reset the rally and keep going. And this is where that mental toughness side comes in and kind of playing to your strengths really shines uh, in these examples. Yeah. Speaking of toughness, I I'm excited to uh, transition to the next player, Joel Macon. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Talk about toughness. He's he's the epitome yes. of that. Um, t- talk mm-hmm. to talk to us about a little bit about Joel Macon and what he needs to do. <laughs> and yeah, it's I mean uh, that that match against him and Paul Cole, he seemed like he really had him at the black ball, but yes, unfortunate. Yeah, and, injury. Yeah, injury. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Joel Macon to me is, he and Paul Cole are very similar in that sense where 
you see progressive improvement in Joel Macon as well. He has that crazy fitness base. He has that very dynamic, explosive movement as well. And before, again, he used to be more retrieval, more attritional sort of style. Now he's been adding the volley drop, the volley kill, the cross volley drop. So he's been adding that attacking element to his game as well. So I think for him, it's very similar to Paul Cole, in my opinion, clearly staying injury-free, given the most recent injury, but it just comes down to that incremental improvement with some of those attacking options because he's been having some tough matches with Sharbagi recently, like Mohamed Sharbagi. He had a bunch of, you know, five setters and stuff with uh, Paul Cole. He was, he had such a close match. So I think he's right there. He just needs to continue putting a bit more attacking into it, uh, which he has been doing. So it's just a matter of seeing again, can he, has that become ingrained in his mind enough and can he do it consistently enough at the right times? So, you know, you're not making, you're not hitting tins and you're also not forcing it's such a fine balance, right? If you try to attack too much, well, now you're risking tins. If you are not attacking enough, you're absorbing too much and you're not initiating it. And you're probably going to lose if you're only counterattacking or, or defending at that level. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I, I hate to just pick out one match and then dive into it, but... <laughs> I really do want to talk about the recent Paul Cole and Joel Macon match where it mm-hmm. seemed Joel Macon was completely outplaying him until the injury hit. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what do you think, especially when everyone is aware how similar they are in the playing style, what was he doing? Do you remember what he was doing differently that enabled him to you know, outclass Paul in that match? You know, I have I probably have to watch that match again because I remember watching it. I don't remember a ton of details about it off the top of my head right now, mm-hmm. but presumably I'm going to make a guess that it just comes down to a little bit more high percentage pressure and attacking. So one player like Paul Cole historically had the tendency to be a little bit too passive and too defensive. If, if you're playing, if if two guys have a similar game style, like Joel Macon and Paul Cole, where they are based on that fitness and strength and retrieval and all of that, Whichever one is being slightly more aggressive with the attacks, whichever one is being a little bit more proactive, that's the guy that's going to come out on top. So that's I'm going to venture a guess and say that's the case until I go back and watch the match and I give like a definitive reason. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's my opinion. And, and and the other thing is like on a one particular day, like you said, it's it's kind of unfair yeah. and hard to make a judgment on one <laughs> match. But on that particular day, maybe Joel Macon was just like in the zone and he was seeing the ball and he was putting in those attacks with quality and maybe Paul Cole was a little bit off. Um, and and that, that could be the difference on that day. Too. I always think it's a tough matchup when it's Joel Macon and Paul Cole. And I think that I want to assume that that would get Paul Cole a little edgy when they're matched up together just because of the – he knows that his greatest weapon of you know being – patient in a hundred minutes is not going to really work with Joel Macon. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it makes him second guess Mm -hmm. his proactive nature that he's really trying to implement as of late. And I think that makes him, you know, go back to his old ways of, Mm -hmm. of being past, not that, you know, aggressive staying in the back. So I think that's why it's always a interesting match when they, those two play, because they're both a little on edge. Um, Right. But would yeah, love because like if, yeah, would love to hear yeah, your video ahead. analysis on this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll have to go back and watch that match because you're absolutely right. Like if Paul Cole plays, I don't know. Let's we'll just pick someone. Let's say Abulgar because we know that Abulgar sometimes mentally gets a little soft at the end of at the end mm-hmm. of the games. So if Paul Cole is playing someone like that or someone who's weaker, he will say, "I don't really need to do much because this guy's going to crack before me." 
And he could even be more passive, and the other guy will probably crack. Or the other guy's going to have to just rip mix and hit outright winners, which, again, it's like a 10-winner kind of thing, which may or may not be favorable. Yeah. Whereas, like you said, when he's playing Joel Macon, he knows that he can't just be passive and sit back. And maybe that's, like, to your point, he has to be more proactive, and maybe the nerves come in because he has to be more proactive. Yeah. And he knows he isn't going to get too many cheap points out of Joel Macon. Um, and he's, he's not going to tire him out either, <laughs> the way he might tire out someone else who will then start giving you the cheap errors or the loose balls. So, yeah, you're, you, I think you're probably absolutely right about the mental side of it with that matchup. Yeah. Uh, now, transitioning to the wild cards you were speaking of, I wanted to start off yeah. with Ferris Suzuki, especially considering yeah. he just beat Marwan in three in the Motor City Open. And I mm-hmm. think when he's healthy and he's mentally you know, in a good spot, he is <laughs> quite literally unplayable um, at times. I agree with you. Like Ferris, he's, he's, he's so strong. I think it's that gymnastics background they reference. He's so strong. He's so explosive. He's He has the hands. He has a shot-making ability. The thing that's held him back is some of them have been injuries in the past. And then the other thing has just been his mindset. He gets, again, this is not a not a jab against him. It's based on kind of some of the videos. I He has a tendency, I think, to falter a little bit with referee calls. Yeah. So if a call or multiple calls go against him, he gets a little bit shaky and on edge, and then he kind of like almost gives up. And... I think if the match gets really tough, sometimes he also gives up. Not That's not consistent. It's more the referee calls and kind of the mental side of it that gets him off, I think. And if he can fix that part of his game, just shifting maybe some of his beliefs around it, accepting that sometimes things are going to suck with referee calls and I just got to move on. And it, by arguing it's not going to help me, it's probably going to make things worse. I think some of those sorts of things can help him realize his potential more, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I completely, I, I agree. It's he's a pleasure to watch. He's it's yeah. unbelievable when he's on, and I think he did have a short patch in mm-hmm. in twenty twenty where it was he was unplayable. And I think the honestly mm-hmm. the only player who really he has a problem with is Paul Cole. And I don't think he really has a problem with any other player when he's on point. And I guess that comes back to the mental toughness thing when you're playing a player with the epitome of mental toughness and physical. Yeah. Yeah. When you're playing someone who you know is not going to give up and who you know is not going to give you cheap points, you start doubting yourself and you say, what the hell do I have to do to win this rally? And what do I have to do to win this match? And when those sorts of questions start creeping in, you're in a bit of a shaky place, right? Because then, then you're either thinking, okay, I have to do something over the top and fancy to win this point. And that's when you start going for those crazy nicks off balance, going backwards, trying to rip nicks. That's when you catch the tin. Uh, maybe you hit some, but you're definitely going to start hitting some tin or you're opening up the court. And when those sorts of things starts happening, then the other guy also recognizes it. And it gives the other guy a little bit of a momentum, like a mindset mental boost. And then you yourself, if you don't hit that nick, you get further down and now you realize now I'm not just say one or two points behind. Now I'm three points behind <laughs> and I'm feel like I have to pull a rabbit out of my hat to win this match. So it's just like yeah. this mental thing that comes in. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, yeah. it's very interesting. And that happens at all levels with all players. And some of them deal with it better than others. And actually at the highest level, that is that mental side of it is the thing that separates players most from one another, especially at the crucial points of the mm-hmm. game. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a tough one. I seems like he could be world number one tomorrow, but something the mental side I is agree. holding him back. Um, another yeah, player that you mentioned is Yusuf Ibrahim. Um, I don't know if you follow College yeah. Squash, but he's currently yeah. 
active in college squash, but he's graduating this mm-hmm. year and he's fully right. a professional after, and he's an exciting prospect. What are your thoughts on mm-hmm. it? Thoughts on him? Yeah, man. I think, I think Yusuf is supremely talented, really creative, super deceptive. He's really fast. I think he has a lot of potential. He has a lot of tools. Um, again, young guys probably needs a little bit more experience to start beating those top guys consistently probably needs to be a little bit more patient at some points. I haven't seen too many like really recent matches, but some of them that I do recall, he has a tendency or he had a tendency at some point to hit too many errors at some points, trying to be a little bit too fine with the attacks, maybe not resetting when he should. He kind of, it's kind of like live by the sword, die by the sword sort of mentality, I think. So I think if he brings a little bit more of that structure and that patience and that discipline with his hands and his speed and everything, he's going to be deadly. Yeah. And it's also refreshing to have a left-handed player on tour who's yeah. playing at a top level, especially on the men's That's side. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and it's impressive to do it while you're in college to be that good. And yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited. There are a bunch, bunch of college players who are graduating this year who are going full-time pro. And I think a lot of them just didn't have the opportunity to be ex- given, given a lot of exposure. So a lot, a yeah. lot of players to be on the lookout for. But yes, um, another player that I think you mentioned was Abu Elgar. Yeah. Um, do you think it's the mental similar to Dazuki with that? A hundred percent mental side, yeah, yeah. like Dazuki. <laughs> you know, he just he does so well. There've been matches. I don't remember who who he was playing, but there've been matches where he's up two zero, and then he loses like fourteen twelve in the fifth or something like that. Yeah. And he's he'll be up two zero. He'll have match balls in the third. He'll lose that, and then he'll lose in the fifth. Like that sort of stuff is is just like the clear sign of him doubting himself of him, maybe not having the faith and the belief that he should be winning. You know, I don't know exactly what it is. It would be interesting to talk to him about that one day. Yeah. See kind of what sort of mental chatter he has going on at those critical points of the match, but hundred percent, like super talented movement is crazy explosive covers the court so well, but just can't seem to finish it when he really needs to. And that's not an easy task. I have struggled many times at my own level <laughs> to finish out matches after being up to love and whatnot. And I know what that mental chatter sounds like for me. I'm assuming it's probably something similar that's happening to him, but that's something you can train. Um, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of belief. Yeah. I think that covers it with all the players or did I miss a player that you mentioned? Um, I had also mentioned, I had mentioned Diego. Yes. And we cannot, I mentioned Tarek moment. Yeah. So let's, let's get for me. Like, yeah, yeah. Let's do it quickly with Diego. I think he has so much potential, so much talent. Ball control is awesome. His he reads the game really well. He he controls the pace really well. He he's fluid. He, he never looks like he's working that hard when he's on court. But I think it's been like a bit of a physical thing for him on and off where he's had some injuries and stuff. And then I think his fitness to play at that like really fast pace day in and day out for five setters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In the past, has been a bit of a an, a challenge for him. And then there's obviously the consistency part. That's that's the thing that differentiates the world number one from the world number five or the world number eight is that the world number one shows up to every tournament, <laughs> tournament after tournament. With yeah. Diego, like he won that tournament a few months ago, but you know, outside of that, he's not consistently reaching the finals or the semis and, and whatever. So I think for him, a little bit of fitness, maybe a little bit more consistency, maybe with mindset. Um, with with Tarek Moment, he was the, the last one I had mentioned. He's a little bit older now. I think he's 33. Um, obviously super talented. But I think with Tarek, 
I remember when he was like world number one, or he he's right around there. He played really well a couple of years ago, and the main difference in his game then was that his length was just so accurate. And mm-hmm. he has that tax. He has that volley drop. He has a cross volley drop. But when his length was accurate, he was getting those opportunities so much more often, and he wasn't having to force it. And he was just like he was winning points in the back and the front. When his length is not on, he's not winning those points in the back. He's having to do too much in the front. And then one part of the court is where he's kind of attacking, but the other part, the opponent doesn't have to worry about as much. So I think with him, if he can get his his length on point, Moment is like, he's deadly. You think Moment has it to be back as world number, or to become world number one? Because he, he seems always so like right there, but just doesn't mm-hmm. seem to get to it. You know, it it all depends on his motivation these days, to be honest. That's why I put him as a wild card because, you know, he and Raneem had a child, right. I think that's about a year old. So depending on where his motivation, his focus, all that sort of stuff is, that, in my opinion, is what would kind of like decide whether he's going to consistently reach that, that level to be world number one. Now, you know, he's a crazy awesome player, but if his focus is on his family and his wife and his son, well, then he might say, you know, I'm happy being two, three, four, five, whatever he, he wants to be in the top 10 while maybe spending more time with his family or something. And that's that's awesome if that's his, the choice he's making, right? So it would be interesting to hear his thoughts on kind of what his ambitions are for PSA yeah. and for how much longer. Yeah, got it. Um, so before we finish this off, I'm going to mm-hmm. kind of get to know you better by doing a quick fire segment. These are just fun fun questions to ask. Oh, there's a couple okay. squash-related ones and then a couple life-related ones. And then mm-hmm. just entertain this. Uh, starting off with your thoughts on best of three. I like it, but I kind of like the best of five because it tests you more. It tests the fitness a little bit more. It tests best of three is cool from entertainment because it's shorter, but I like the best of five is kind of like the... Like the real deal. Yeah, I don't know. that's that's my opinion. So, do you think the current layout system right now with one or two events with best of three is? Pr- yeah, I, well, yeah. Well I think I think having hundred percent. I think having that mix is good. And then I think in some of those tournaments where they have the first few rounds of best uh, best of three, and then the final is best of five. I think that's a cool mix as well because it keeps players healthier. Because best of five day after day, if you have like we said, two, three, five setters, like you're ruined, right? Like you can't perform and then it's not really a fun final. Whereas if you have two, three, three gamers, but then a five gamer, like it's more manageable. So I think for crowd spectators, player longevity and all that kind of stuff, I think it's good to have a mix. Mm -hmm. Um, Thoughts on goggles and squash for professionals? (laughs) I wear wear eye guards all the time. (laughs) Um, There have been... There, like Jonathan Power, there's a famous like poster of Jonathan Power promoting eye guards because he got hit in the eye and he had like a, you know blood and all sorts of stuff everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think they should wear them just from a safety perspective. Yeah, it's, they don't look cool. <laughs> they get in the way a little bit. They probably fog up and stuff for them. But uh, I would put safety first because I don't think it hinders your ability to play by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it would probably give players an opportunity to kind of wipe the sweat off a little bit, take the break a little, little bit more. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, Solo practicing or practicing in groups? Which do you think is more beneficial? Uh, both. You can't. It's not one or the other. Which like, Which do you favor? Like you personally, which do you like? See, I I grew up. So it depends. Like I think early on in the season, you probably want to do a lot of solo, mm-hmm. and you probably want to do some solo all the time because it really just gives you the time to get the feel right. But the but there's nothing like training with other people because yeah. you never play squash by yourself, right? <laughs> so I'd say early in the season, definitely do more solo if the, if especially if you're working on some technical aspect, and then 
when it comes closer to season time, you definitely want to be doing more hitting with other people to simulate an actual game. Uh, thoughts on commentators for squash? Well, wh- what do you want to know about about commentators? No, like, are you are you do you like listening to commentators when you uh, are watching squash, or do you do you rather not yeah. with them? No, no, I do, I do. I think the commentators add a sense of a sense they add a sense of like just fun and jokes and jovialness, especially when Joey and PJ and stuff like you know they talk about some random stuff and then they're squashing it. So I think that's fun. And then, and then those guys are so close to the sport that they give you a lot of context about players and stuff mm-hmm. like that too, and kind of the behind the scenes. I think it would be for most people, it would be boring without the commentary. Sometimes I watch squash without any commentary when I'm analyzing it because I don't want to have the bias of what they're uh, saying. I want to study the video myself. So anytime I do my videos, I put the audio, I turn the audio off. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but I think for most people, it would be boring if they only heard the squash ball. <laughs> um, <laughs> thoughts on U.S. college squash? Man, the level is the level is crazy now. <laughs> like with, mm-hmm. you know, with Yusuf, with uh, Victor and, you know, several other players that are coming from all over the world. I think it's, um, I think it's phenomenal. The only, I guess, I don't know enough about it to comment effectively, but I know like Victor, for example, I spoke to him recently and because of his commitments at school and stuff, he can't compete too much on the PSA tour for the next few months, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of that downside um, if you're playing in college because you can't compete as much on the PSA, but then that's a decision that you made to go to college, get the education and still get so much quality training and then come out and be and be set because later on after squash you're you're good to go. So you would would you recommend this to your students who are training with you? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think there's no reason to not go to college. You, not only do you get your education, you learn how to manage priorities and balance your schedule. You get to train now at a very high level with guys like that, and even and even if you're not training with those, you know, like two, three, four, like top twenty in the world, top thirty in the world players. All of these players at these strong teams are really, really good. Like even players that are five, six are like hundred in the world, right. like that level. So there's no reason not to go to college, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, I think it's a, it's a win-win situation. Uh, nicknames for PSA players. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, I've I've never been like a massive nickname person myself. <laughs> so, but I, but I think it's cool. I think it's cool. It gives. It gives people like some something fun to to go with, you know. Like when I think of Asali, you think Raging Bull. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> or you think of the Viper, and you know, just like jump stinging quickly. Like you know, you think I, I think it's good. That kind of symbolism, I think it's cool. Yeah, most underrated player on tour right now. Oh man, you know what? I don't know enough of the depth of the game to give you, cause I mostly focus on kind of the top guys. Yeah. So it's hard for me to, cause I don't know who's up and coming at like 50 in the world, for example. Um, yeah. I don't know if I have a clear answer for that, to be honest. God. Well, well, I guess you got it. Who's, who's your most underrated player in your opinion? <laughs> um, I think one player that's always been on my mind is Yip. I don't know if you, okay. Um, I yeah, just yeah, think yeah. he hasn't had enough tournament, tournament exposure, but just because mm. he's from Hong Kong and he doesn't have, you know, the maybe he just doesn't have the opportunity to be flying out all the time for different tournaments. Yep. But I think yeah, his results are relatively strong, and he yeah. his ranking doesn't do justice. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch you up now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm gonna do some life related ones, or just in general. I think it's gonna okay. be funny. Uh, if you're shipwrecked on an island and all your basics are covered, what are the two things you bring with you? 
all my basics are covered. Yeah. Like, okay. Uh, well, I would bring my wife and my daughter. <laughs> That's, there's a correct answer for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a book first, but I'm like, no, no, that's not the right answer. <laughs> um, if you were given the option to know how you were going to die, would you want to know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would. Because it wouldn't scare me. I was like, oh, oh cool. <laughs> it's gonna, yeah. I think it's funny. I, I talk to my wife about this sometimes and just this idea of spiritual growth and stuff. And I have this sense that if I were to pass, I wouldn't be like overly regretful or remorseful or upset if that were to happen to, to me personally, other than leaving behind my wife and my daughter, that would be, that would mm -hmm. be the, the thing that would make me sad. But in terms of things that I'm trying to do in my life, finding purpose, all that sort of stuff, I don't really have regrets in my life uh, on that front. Okay. What is, what has been the toughest part about being a father right now? The toughest part about being a father. I would say trying to be super patient all the time. <laughs> That's probably the toughest thing. <laughs> I, I'm not always successful at that. <laughs> well, I think you, there needs to be a, a huge level of patience with kids. With massive, <laughs> massive. And, not, and actually not being able, knowing that you can't control everything. So, and mm. that's related to patience. Yeah. <laughs> Um, best and worst, worst purchase you've ever made. Best and oh, the worst purchase, <laughs> but I don't want to put anything under the bus, man. <laughs> uh, there was this one like device that was supposed to help with the recovery. And I got that and it was based on like some, some science around like vibration therapy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, you know, let me give this a try never really use it much didn't really feel any different so i would say that would be the worst i'm not yeah. going to tell you what it was but that would be the worst um best purchase honestly books like like right now i'm reading martin luther king's autobiography oh wow this one is Fitting. like such an awesome book reading Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography as well. So books are definitely the best purchase. And then, I mean, on a practical level, outside of knowledge here, I say laptop and stuff. So yeah. I can create the, these videos. The essentials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Biggest pet peeve. Biggest pet peeve. You know, it's funny. I was watching your, uh, I, I did a little quick look at yeah. your interview with Chris Hansen and I kind of like skipped, I skipped around, I jumped around in it and I landed on, I think exactly this question, <laughs> biggest pet peeve. And I actually reflected on it after that. And I couldn't think of one single thing really? that really bothers me. Yeah. Like I literally couldn't think of one thing that like genuinely bothers me. There might. Yeah. Well, I mean, you must be a very patient person. I think maybe you're uh well, I'm trying and I'm genuinely trying on that, like spiritual evolution, like I was telling you, mm -hmm. and there, there th things happen sometimes and, and I'd be like, oh, you know, it might frustrate me for like a minute or 30 seconds or something. And then like, all right, that's done. There's, I, there's always a reason behind it. And I'm always trying to, I try my best to give other people the benefit of the doubt. And I recognize that everyone in, whenever someone's doing something and it's not something that, that I like, for example, they're doing the best that they're capable of in that moment. And at the end of the day, the only thing that I can control is myself, my reaction to it, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So maybe for that reason, I guess there isn't anything that really just like gets on my nerves, for example. Yeah. Oh, are you really uh, setting the bar high from the future now? 
with because usually <laughs> people just go at it when I ask this question. <laughs> um, last question is, who is your currently active on tour? Who is your favorite player? Is there a certain player that you you know have a little bias for? Mm, you know, I don't have like one that stands out above everyone else. Mm-hmm. I really admire Paul Cole for his consistent evolution with everything he's doing. I love Ali Farag's demeanor and his his fairness, uh, his desire and, and willingness to applaud his opponents, doing all that sort of stuff. So I'd say probably those two, but there, but there's no one. Like if, if Rami was still on the tour, oh, I'd say Rami. Yeah. Uh, I must but, agree with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what I would say. Yeah. But okay, I'm going to wrap it up there, folks. Uh, again, thank you so much, Ahad, for joining me on this episode. And if you're listening to this, don't forget to subscribe to AR Performance. Uh, it's for killer squash content, and it never disappoints. And thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on.